Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. The Jewish historian Josephus gives a report of Alexander the Great. At the time, it is said that Alexander and his army was approaching Jerusalem, fully intent on destroying the city. The year was 332 B.C. and Alexander had already defeated the coastal cities of Tyre and Gaza in his march toward Egypt. Alexander had demanded men and supplies from the people of Jerusalem, but the Hebrew people at the time were under the control of the Persian king Darius, and so they hesitated. Jerusalem had just been rebuilt roughly a hundred years before by Ezra and Nehemiah. The rebuilt temple was very basic at this point in time, and Alexander was angry. He began to move on the city. The priests of the temple went out to meet with Alexander. Alexander went out to the priests alone, and then he eventually went with the high priest to the temple, where he offered a sacrifice to God. Alexander was shown the text of Daniel 8, and he recognized that he was the fulfillment of the text that Alexander and his army were destined by the God of the Hebrews to conquer the Persians. Alexander then bypassed Jerusalem, allowing the Hebrew people to continue to worship their God, and he left to take over Egypt. Our text before us is Daniel chapter 8, and while I cannot tell you with certainty that the account of Josephus is accurate because I was not there, I can tell you that First Peter teaches us that the grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And what we have before us is a remarkable, accurate prediction given to Daniel from the author of creation. Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram, which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. For Daniel, this was one of his most troubling visions. Skip down to verse 27. Notice Daniel's reaction. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. 
Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Daniel was exhausted and sick for days, astonished by the vision he received. I tend to think that Daniel had a legitimate concern for the future believers that would be directly impacted by this vision. Still serving in Babylon, he was overwhelmed by what the future would bring. Recognize that chapter 8 indicates a change. Turn back to chapter 2 for just a moment. When we first looked at chapter 2, I pointed out that chapter 1 in the first three verses of chapter 2 were written in Hebrew. But notice again with me that Daniel 2 verse 4 records, Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. And at that point, Daniel switched from writing in Hebrew to Aramaic. Daniel wrote in Aramaic all the way through chapter 7. This was the common language of the day in Babylon, Assyria, and Persia. This is what they used for trade and to communicate between the nations. This was the language of the nations, and this was the language used by Daniel in chapters 2 through 7. Because the information contained in those chapters, it centers on the nations. Chapters 2 through 7 define for us and explain the times of the Gentiles, the time period where the Gentile nations would rule over the nation of Israel. But then back in Daniel chapter 8, starting with verse 1 all of the way through the rest of the book, the text switches back to the Hebrew language because as we are going to see, the rest of Daniel centers on issues that focus squarely on the nation of Israel. The primary audience of chapters 2 through 7 were the nations of the world. The primary audience of chapters 8 through 12 was the Hebrew people. But verse 1 also contains an explanation from Daniel. This took place in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Belshazzar and Nabonidus are the Babylonian rulers, and this vision was two years after the dream and the visions that Daniel had in chapter 7. The dating that Daniel gives us lets us know that this happened around 551 B.C. Daniel is now around 70 years old, but take another look at verse 2. I saw in the vision, and so it happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli. The details given are remarkable. Follow the wording closely in verse 2. It may seem like Daniel is saying that he was actually in Shushan, but I don't think he was. The rendering of the wording that Daniel was looking in the vision, it gives me the impression that Daniel was physically in Babylon, but that in the vision he was in Shushan. Notice again the wording. I saw in the vision, and so it happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan. In the latter part of the verse, I saw in the vision that I was by the river. Ezekiel had a similar experience, being in one place, receiving a vision from God. And in that vision, he was somewhere else. Ezekiel was about the same age as Daniel. Ezekiel lived at the same time as Daniel in captivity in Babylon. And if you look at the record of Ezekiel 8, he was in Babylon, but he had a vision of Jerusalem. Shushan or Susa, it originally was called Shushan, but the Greeks referred to it as Susa. This was located a couple of hundred miles to the east of Babylon, the modern village that is by the remains of that ancient city. Today it's called Shush. The name has changed slightly, but it's the same place. But why would this city become important later on in history? 
This palace spoken of in Daniel's vision would not be built for quite a few years after this vision takes place. King Xerxes of Persia would have it built. There was an older palace that was there when Daniel was alive, but it wasn't the same palace that Persia would use. This would become one of the capitals of the Medo-Persian Empire after they conquered Babylon. It became the winter capital for Medo-Persia. And this is where the book of Esther takes place, 80 years after Daniel had this vision, and where Nehemiah starts out in service to the king of Persia. Nehemiah departed from Shushan 107 years after this vision of Daniel to return to the land of Israel. On your map, on your study guide, you can see it was about 250 miles from Babylon and about 150 miles north of the mouth of the Persian Gulf. There's a huge mound where the old city used to be, but excavations have been limited because of the Muslims. Today, it's located in Iran, but if you are standing there today, part of this great castle that Daniel mentions in verse 2 that would be built by the Persians, part of it still stands today. Verse 2 teaches that Daniel saw in the vision he was in Shushan, in the citadel, the fortified place, the king of Persia's castle. Shushan was in the province of Elam, and Daniel tells us that he saw in the vision that he was by the river Uli. This was a man-made canal that connected two rivers. Later on, during the time of Alexander the Great, the river Uli was a waterway to the east of Susa, where Alexander would actually sail his fleet of ships into. But notice again what takes place in verses 3 and 4. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram, which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him. Nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. Now, who's the ram, and how do we know? Let's skip down to verse 20. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Medea and Persia. In chapter 7, we saw that the Medo Persian Empire was a bear raised up on one side. The Medes were passive, and the Persians were more aggressive. Both are represented by one of the horns, horns representing power. Daniel reports in verse 3 that the second horn was higher, representing the Persians becoming more prominent and powerful. In the Old Testament, the ram is mentioned as representing a symbol of power. And in the Persian kingdom, when the king would appear in front of his army, instead of wearing a crown, he would wear the head of a ram because the Persians believed in a guardian spirit that was portrayed as a ram. And so the armies of Persia would actually carry banners with pictures of rams because this was the symbol of Persia. Verse 4 tells us that the ram pushed westward, northward, and southward. No one could stand before the ram. When the Medes and Persians joined together for almost 200 years, they dominated the world. Nations fell before them, including Babylon. These directions, west, north, and south, these were the primary directions that they expanded. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 45. About 150 years before our passage in Daniel, Isaiah prophesied about a man named Cyrus. Cyrus would eventually become a Persian king. He was used by God, and even though he was not a believer in the God of the Hebrews, he was used by God to judge the nations. This prophecy 
named the man that God would use 150 years ahead of time. Isaiah 45, start with verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double door so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, here's how this fits in with Daniel 8. Cyrus was the king that was mostly responsible for the growth of the Medo-Persian Empire. Cyrus attacked and took over the Babylonian Empire. And remember the scene in Daniel chapter 5, the feast was taking place in Babylon. And at the time of chapter 5, all of Babylon had been taken over. The entire nation was under the control of Medo-Persia, except for the capital city of Babylon. Now, here's where we need to do a little bit of a review. If you're going to get the full impact of what is taking place, both in Isaiah and Daniel 8. In Daniel 5, we made mention that Nabonidus was the king of Babylon. He led the last army of Babylon out from the city to battle the army of Persia. The Babylonian army was defeated. Nabonidus fled for his life. And now all that was left was this city of Babylon. Belshazzar. Same guy Daniel mentions in chapter 8. He was the acting king while his father was away. Babylon had huge stockpiles of food, and it is said that they had over 20 years of food stored up. We made mention before that the outer walls of Babylon were enormous, and inside the city itself were beautiful avenues, parks, and a number of royal palaces. Most of the streets in Babylon were lined with buildings that were three or four stories high. There were even larger buildings. The Temple of Bel was eight stories high, and they had the famous hanging gardens, a large man-made structure with gardens that appeared to hang off the building. Bridges connected the city over the Euphrates River. The walls of the city were said to be so thick that you could have carriages riding side by side on top of the walls. Defensive towers connected the walls on all sides of the city that were just massive. And where the Euphrates River met the walls on the north and south sides of the city, they had gates that hung down into the water. And they also had gates and walls on both sides of the river. This is what you see on your study guide, inner walls along the river, so that if an enemy tried to get into the river gates, they could just shut the inner gates along the Euphrates River, and their enemies would actually be pinned down between the two walls along the sides of the Euphrates River. Babylon was one of the most beautiful cities of the ancient world. And from a human point of view, they didn't have much to worry about, even though Persia was camped outside the city. 
Babylon was in the middle of a desert, meaning the Persian army was sitting, camped out in a desert. Babylon had food stocked and fresh water flowing into the city. They could last longer inside the city than their enemies could afford to sit outside to wait them out. It's hard to convince your troops to just enlist for 20 or so years until the enemy runs out of food. In the first couple of verses of Isaiah 45, especially verses 1 and 2, the Lord is telling Cyrus through the prophet Isaiah, 150 years or more before Cyrus would come against the city of Babylon, God would use Cyrus to subdue the nations. And notice again the wording of verses 1 and 2, the double doors would be open, the gates would not be shut. In the days of Cyrus, it was well known that the double doors referred to Babylon because Babylon was known throughout the world for having these fortified walls. And here is where this gets interesting. A Greek historian reports, even though Cyrus did not worship the Hebrew God, he did know of this text in Isaiah. He believed that he had the God of the Hebrews on his side. And he even believed that the inner gates would be left open. This was the prediction in verses one and two. Cyrus actually took a big gamble. He is the one who had his troops divert the water from the Euphrates River. And once the water was diverted, the troops walked right underneath the outer gates, which were normally hanging down below the water line. The Babylonians had a plan. If they saw the Persians coming, they're going to simply close the inner gates, man those inner walls. And when the Persians came in, they would have been slaughtered because the men of Babylon would have been shooting down on them from both sides. Cyrus trusted this passage in Isaiah 45 that the inner gates would be open. And the historians teach us that not only did the Babylonians not notice what the Persians were up to, and not only did they fail to close the inner gates along the Euphrates River, but they didn't even shut the gates to the palace. The Persians, they just walked right underneath the outer gates, went in through the inner gates, and walked right into the palace taking prisoners as they went. Build your faith in God by looking at the prophecies like this, where the Lord predicted by name the man that would take down Babylon well over 150 years before it happened. Notice again the end of verse 3 here in Isaiah 45. That you may know that I, the Lord who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. Rest in the sovereignty of God. God raised up Cyrus for the sake of his people, for the sake of Israel, in order that they could return to the land. As you turn back to Daniel 8, remember that Daniel's vision took place before Babylon fell. This was about 12 years before the fall of Babylon, the rise of Persia. They pushed, expanded to the west, north, and south. The end of verse 4 in Daniel, no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. The God of the Hebrews gave Cyrus the authority to take over the nations, and no one was about to stop him. But here comes Alexander the Great in verse 5. And as I was considering suddenly a male goat from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. The goat is represented as moving so fast that it didn't even touch the ground. 
But again, how do we know that the goat represents Greece? Verse 21, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. This is Alexander the Great of Greece. His kingdom used a goat as a symbol. They have found bronze statues of goats from his kingdom because this became their symbol. The text states here that the goat came across the whole surface of the earth. It doesn't say that Alexander conquered the whole earth. He just came across it. Alexander was just 21 years old when he first became the commander of the Greek forces. By the time he died 12 years later, when he was almost 33 years old, he had conquered every nation of the world that had any worthwhile military to put up a fight. It is said that at one time he actually wept because there were no more countries to conquer. His army was only 35,000 men, tiny compared to the armies of the Persians. The Persians had hundreds of thousands of men, and yet Alexander conquered them and the other nations with a mere 35,000 men. Verse 5 tells us that the goat had a notable horn between the eyes. The thought here with one large horn instead of two was that all of the authority and all of the power of this kingdom was focused in the person of Alexander the Great. And what makes this so remarkable is that when Daniel was given this vision, Greece was a long, long way from becoming a major player in the world. At the time of Daniel, Greece was independent states that fought against one another. They were more of a confederation of independent states that had a love-hate relationship with one another. And to the common person in Daniel's day, the fulfillment of this prophecy by Greece would have seemed inconceivable. Alexander was born in the year 356 BC. He was taught by Aristotle. Alexander was taught by the best this world had to offer. His father was a king. His father united Greece with Macedonia. His father was planning on fighting Persia. But when Alexander's father was murdered, young Alexander became the king in 336 BC at just 21 years of age. Within two years, he began to attack Persia. And within another two years, he had him on the run. He had Persia tamed. Take another look at verse 6. I love the descriptive wording here, still referring to Alexander and his army. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river and ran at him with furious power. It was at the river Granicus that Alexander won his first major battle against the forces of Medo-Persia in 334 BC. Within two years, Persia was on the run, and within just three years, the armies of Persia were defeated. At the end of verse 6, the text states that the goat ran at him with furious power. And then verse 7 teaches that he was confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him. Part of the reason was because Persia had already attacked Greece and the Greeks had revenge on their minds. In 331 BC, Alexander defeated Darius Condomanus. And then the following year, he burned the city of Persepolis. Persepolis was just simply the Greek word that they used for the city of Persia. They defeated the armies of Persia, and then a year later, they burned Persepolis to the ground. Persepolis was one of their four capital cities. It was the heart of the nation, a place where their kings were buried. It would be like burning down Washington, D.C., along with Arlington National Cemetery. It was a crippling blow to the Persian Empire. Notice again, verse 7 tells us that the goat broke the two horns of the ram. Horns representing what? Horns representing power. 
Daniel saw the power being removed, taken away from the Medo-Persian Empire. Go back to verse 4 again. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward so that no animal could withstand him. Nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. No one could stand up to Medo-Persia. But then look again at the end of verse 7. There was no power in the ram, speaking again of Medo-Persia. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. There was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. In verse 4, no one could stand up to Medo-Persia. In verse 7, no one could help Medo-Persia from being destroyed by Greece. Verse 8, our last verse. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Alexander died unexpectedly in 323 BC. This is what is meant in verse 8, where the text predicted that the large horn would be broken. Alexander died in Babylon, overexertion, sick, and drunk. He died just a little bit shy of 33 years of age. This was a man that lived a life of excess, food, drink, the nightlife. When he died, a long, drawn-out fight came about. After 20 years of fighting, the kingdom was divided into the four parts predicted in verse 8, where Daniel tells us, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Seleucus had the eastern section, Cassander the west, Ptolemy the south, and Lysimachus had control of the north. Alexander conquered the world, but he could not conquer his own sin nature. During his 1960 presidential campaign, John F. Kennedy often closed his speeches with the story of Colonel Davenport. At the time, Davenport was the Speaker of the Connecticut House of Representatives. It was the 19th of May in the year 1780, and the sky darkened. It was ominous. People were actually lighting candles in their homes for light. It is reported that the birds went silent. There was that still quietness in the air. Some of the representatives glancing out the windows feared the end was at hand. It was so dark outside that many thought that the last judgment of God was here. And they wanted to immediately adjourn. They wanted to go home. Davenport rose and said, I am against an adjournment. The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. And if it is not, there is no cause for an adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that candles may be brought. But listen to what he said next. I choose, for one, to meet him face to face. No faithless servant frightened from my task, but ready when the Lord of the harvest calls. And therefore, with all reverence, I would say, let God do his work. We will see to ours. Bring in the candles. Let there be a lesson in this for us. Rather than to fear what is to come, we are to be faithful to the work he has called us to. There's plenty of darkness in this present world. And even Daniel was astonished at the prediction of the dark times that would come. There's a place in time to be in awe of the judgment of God. There's a place in time to marvel at his majesty, his sovereignty, and a time to be repulsed at the evils of the world. But let us remember the reason this prophecy was written. The purpose of prophecy is to directly impact the actions, the thoughts, and the attitudes of those who hear it. Daniel 
and the Hebrew people were still in bondage, in captivity in Babylon. But the revelation put forward in Daniel 8, it was a reminder to them that God alone was in control of the nations. They could take hope from this. And they could take hope from the promise of Isaiah 44, 28, that a man by the name of Cyrus would come, allowing the Hebrews to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Astonished, ill at the thought of what would come, Daniel felt the right response was to get up and continue on with the king's business. We have a king to serve. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And his word is reliable. It's right 100% of the time. As the psalmist declared, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. God's word, open before us, reserved just for you and for me. Rest your faith in him, on his word, as we serve our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.